morning's Old Testament scripture reading is coming from Daniel chapter 3, verses 19 to 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't these three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. There were only three of them. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of God. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. New Testament scripture comes from Luke 12, 4-7. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who killed the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Awesome. Thank you, Troy, so much. Imagine me with me, if you will, that you woke up this morning, and as you're getting ready to come to church, you realize something is different. There seems to be a buzz about Moose Jaw. You hear traffic rolling up and down your street, and so you peer out your window to have a look, and you notice there's armored vehicles trolling up and down your street. Something tragic has happened. Saskatchewan has been invaded. You laugh, but it's true. It's been invaded, and... You can't go about your normal business. You can't get up and go to church. Um, It's martial law. They're on lockdown. You're confined to your homes. And you hit uh, the news, and the news channels have all been taken over, and there's only one voice on the TV, and they're telling you how they now have taken possession of Saskatchewan, and it's theirs. It's been invaded by um, a foreign country. To make matters even more interesting... In this hypothetical scenario, um, they don't just stop with invading Saskatchewan. They decide that they're going to disband 
Saskatchewan people all together. And so they collect the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, which, I mean, Saskatchewan has their fair share of the best of the best. And they not only uh, take them to a different country where it's a completely different culture, um, different language, but they enlist them in training for three years of uh, training and indoctrination into this new way of a country. And now, we chuckle because there's no way anyone's going to invade Saskatchewan. Like, there's a lot of other provinces and countries that would probably be a most... I mean, Saskatchewan would probably be maybe fairly easy to invade. I mean, we are kind of a landlocked province. But for us, living in Saskatchewan, this idea of being exiled or being invaded and forced to go and live somewhere else seems like a really foreign concept. It's actually really difficult for us to understand. As I'm sure you gathered by uh, Troy's readings this morning, uh, we're hanging out in the book of Daniel. Uh, So our church has been on a journey called The Story uh, over the last number of weeks as the posters depict. And uh, we've been marching our way through the narrative of the Bible. And this morning we land on Daniel. And I have to admit, I don't know that I'd ever intentionally settled into the book of Daniel to read it before knowing I was preaching this sermon. But what happened to me when I opened this book is pretty neat. I feel like I have a new favorite book of the Bible. My eyes, I feel like, were opened. Uh, I read it in the story, the, the story book that we've been handing out, and the story was just so good. I was like, I gotta, I gotta figure out what the rest of this, this whole book says. And so I jumped in, and I was blown away with the way that this book works. And so um, this morning, I've got quite a challenge set ahead of me in the next uh, 30 minutes here, is that I'd like to walk us through the book of Daniel. Now, to give some explanation... Uh, to use a structure that we're already familiar with in terms of uh, as we've been journeying through this story is this idea that there exists an upper story and a lower story, right? Where in the, the upper story is dealing with God's pursuit to redeem and restore his creation. That's what the upper story is all about. But there's also this lower story that's taking place. And this lower story represents all of the people, the places, and the events that take place in the Bible. And even in our world, the stories and the day-to-day that sort of make up that upper story. And I was amazed because actually the book of Daniel follows this structure uh, quite closely. Daniel is only 12 chapters long. And the first six have to do with uh, narrative. So it's telling uh, the story of Daniel and his friends being in exile in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar and other rulers. And that's the first six chapters. Then chapters 7 through 12, you get into this oh, crazy literature where Daniel is having his own visions and God is giving him the interpretation about future events and God's glory and like Jesus shows up on the scene and Daniel doesn't even have words for it or doesn't even understand who it is and at the end of it he's like just caught up and he's like what does this all mean and God basically tells him ah, roll up the scroll set it aside it's it's coming type idea and so for us this morning um I'd like, to, I'd like to walk us through the first six chapters of Daniel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my absolute best to be really respectful of your time. I probably have enough content to keep you here till two, but I, 
I promise I won't do that. Um, and so we're going to page two. And now, the way that I've sort of structured this is that in each, I'm just going to walk through the first six chapters. Um, and we're going to be focusing mostly on the lower story. Because I believe that while we can't relate with the notion of being exiles into another country, the Bible talks actually really clearly about the notion of exile for all Christians. The reality that um, in Hebrews 11 and in 1 Peter, uh, they speak of it as that we are exiles here on earth, that we're strangers here, that we're foreigners, that we don't actually belong, that our home is in heaven. And so with that kind of a context, with that sort of a framework, I think we can read Daniel and we can look at the book of Daniel. And while he's experiencing a very physical exile uh, as God's judgment on the Israelite people, right? They had disobeyed God and turned their heart that God said, you know, I've, I've threatened this and I've told you that this would be the outcome if you wouldn't follow me and harden your hearts. And so he exiled them. Their country was taken over by another country and they were hauled off uh, to live somewhere else. But if we walk through the six chapters of Daniel and the stories, I believe that there's kind of six key points for us that, that will help us live in our exile, to do well with where God has placed us in this time and place. And so I'd like to journey through those. If you'd like to jump in with me, um, grab your Bible, turn to the book of Daniel. Um, it's a little bit after Ezekiel and it's before Hosea, um, and we'll, we'll kind of go along. And uh, if I might make a recommendation... Um, the chapter titles in your Bible are not inspired, okay? They're not inspired. The Word of God is inspired, not the chapter titles. The chapter titles are helpful. So if you could think of what I'm going to propose to you, I'm giving you new chapter titles for the first six. So if you'd like, you can follow along and you can even write in, I mean, if, the, if you think they're any good, write in my chapter titles as we journey through this, okay? Um, oops. Nice catch. That was brilliant. <clears throat> so, of course, our exile is uh, the life that we live. Our world is still broken and marred by sin. Um, and yet we're called to live here even though sin is rampant. And, I mean, you just turn on the news and listen for five minutes and you realize, man, our world is so broken. Yet we're called to live under a different authority. Not the authority of the world, but the authority of our God. And so our exile, rather than being maybe a, a physical one, is more sort of, of a spiritual one. And so uh, during our time together in, this, in these chapters, we're going to look that God is instructing us to stand out. He's instructing us to stand together. He's instructing us to stand up, to stand down, to stand empty-handed, and to stand firm. And we're going to jump in here with Daniel chapter 1. So Daniel is among the best Israelites Best of the Israelites that Israel has to offer. And so him and a number of his friends are hauled off to Babylon. And they're enlisted in a three-year training to learn the language and the customs of Babylon and to be indoctrinated into their language. However, they're committed Israelites and they're faithful to the Lord through this. And as they're there, they're given new names. So where their old names in Israel all represented um, glorifying God the Father and speaking well of him, in Babylon they're given new names that all reflect uh, pagan gods. Um, the other thing that they're given is that they're given a brand new diet. Um, 
they're actually told that they're given portions from the king's table itself. Uh, they don't want these guys being slouches. They want the best of the best for them uh, as they train. However, many of the, much of the food that would be coming from the king's table would be polluted. And, and Daniel didn't want to pollute himself. And so we find ourselves with our very first uh, scripture reference here in 1 verse 8. And it says this. It says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So David, or sorry, for Daniel, forgive me, decides to stand out. Of course, he could have just gone with the flow and been like everybody else and enjoyed this meat. And yet there was something in him that stirred him that said, no, I will not compromise with what God has asked of me. And so I'm going to refuse this food. But he doesn't just do it in terms of like, a, like stick his nose up and refuse to do it and face his punishment. He actually goes about it really respectfully. He asks the official. And the scripture goes on to tell us that actually God had given him favor with this official. And the official tells him, he says, hey, um, that's all well and good if you want to just eat vegetables and water. But what's going to happen when the king looks at you and you look scrawny and disheveled under my watch? He's going to have my head. And so Daniel makes a compromise. He says, well, let's test it out. Give us 10 days. Me and my friends, just give us water and vegetables. And at the end of the 10 days, evaluate and see who looks better. Well, when you know with the favor of the Lord, at the end of the 10 days, by the king Nebuchadnezzar's own admission... Those who had had only um, water and vegetables were ten times better than all those who were eaten from the king's table. And so the official makes the right call. He cuts everybody's diet and makes it the same as bread and water. Or like vegetables and water. Which I would have been quite bummed like, by that. Because my guess is there's no McDonald's. And <laughs> I am enjoying the youth, youth pastor menu of fast food since my time here in Moose Jaw. But that's not what happened. So Daniel was willing to stand out in a foreign culture. And I think from chapter 1, I would title it, Stand Out. He was not willing to compromise on what God has instructed him. So I think the challenge to us in our current story is this, friends. Are we willing to stand out in our culture? The truth is, is that God has given us instruction on how to live. Will we walk in it even when it causes us to stand out? Now, I don't really like being the center of attention or making people feel uncomfortable or awkward. One of these things is praying at mealtimes. In my home, no problem. In fact, some of you who visited our house know that when it comes to mealtime and praying, oftentimes we will all lift our hands and we will howl out the doxology, all right, at the top of our lungs. And I hold that last amen for as long as I can till my face is red, my kids are chuckling, and it's done. Like, we, we love to pray together as a family at mealtime. And yet when we're out in public, where other people can see us, and maybe you can relate with this, there's sort of this twinge of like, oh, I don't want to, like, I feel like I'm imposing on people or whatever. You try to do it like, you know, like camouflage prayer, right? Where your eyes are open, and you're looking around, and you're just kind of mumbling it, right? Because, you know, you know, and it comes from a good place that you don't want to make people feel awkward. And yet, if we're honest, if I'm honest with myself, I realize that the focus is on me and what I'm doing rather than the focus being on the one who I'm talking to. 
And I feel like when we get a vision for who it is that we're talking to and what his heart is towards us and his heart is towards this world, all of a sudden it doesn't matter whether we stand out. We're delighted to stand out because we know we're standing out for him and on his behalf. And so that's my question. Are you willing to stand out? I do, I do feel so at the end of every chapter, I'll kind of have a, a question that will pop up there for you. And I, I do this because I think sometimes we approach the Bible in such a way that we, we ask questions of it all the time. And that's good. It's good to ask questions. But I think sometimes there's a skeptical nature or there's a way of, our questions are a way of getting us off the hook of being obedient. And I think God wants to challenge that. And I think, actually, it's not so much about us reading the Bible and questioning it. It's actually about the Bible reading us and questioning us. And so today, those questions are up there, are, are meant to, to help you maybe make you think and see how this chapter um, challenges you. Sound good? Okay. Um, come on to my next one here. So here we are. Where did I leave off in the story? Uh, diet, refused to, refused, to, refused to contaminate himself. And at the end of the time, I believe I've already said this, they stand 10 times better than all the rest of the people that are trained. The Israelites are the best of the best of the best. They're the elite. Um, chapter 2, we find ourselves into. Now, in chapter 2, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a troubling sort. Uh, he calls all of his astrologers, uh, magicians, all the wise men, and, they, and, he, and he says, Kate, I need you guys to interpret this dream. Uh, it's very troubling, and, and I want answers. And so they're all like, okay, King, tell us the dream, and we'll give you the inter interpretation. And I think something happened in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, and I think he knew the reality of his culture, that they were... They were more prone to tell him what they thought he wanted to hear than actually any truth about whether they could interpret the dream. And so he asked the impossible task. He says, I'll tell you what, how about you tell me the dream I had and tell me the interpretation? And they're like, this is crazy. No one can do this. No king has ever asked us. This is far too difficult. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, you know what? Forget it. And he issues a decree to kill all the wise men in Babylon. Does that sound wise to you? That sounds like a man who's, on, who's just fed up. And yet this is the instruction that he gave, is to kill all the wise men. And so the officials are heading out. They're looking for Daniel and his friends to be executed. Like, this book is full of intrigue. And they come, whoops, sorry. They come to Daniel, and Daniel goes, well, why is it that the king is so upset? And they say, well, he's had this dream, and no one can interpret it. And Daniel says, well, Give me some time, and we'll, I'll interpret this. We'll interpret this. And so this standing together is that Daniel doesn't just go to a room by himself and pray to God for the answer. He actually rallies his friends. He has a small group. He has a life group. He goes to them, and he says, guys, let's pray so that our lives are not forfeit. I think I actually have that. So... Here it is. I'll read it in uh, chapter 2. We're on verse 17. It says, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So these, you'd know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? Those are their, those are their, these are their uh, Israelite names. He urged them to plea for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Get this, as they petition heaven, God downloads pretty much exactly what he had shown King Nebuchadnezzar. But it didn't just come as a result of Daniel's efforts. It came to the results of a group of them committing and petitioning in prayer. In the end, Daniel goes and uh, he's able to explain to King Nebuchadnezzar exactly what his dream was and exactly what it means. And in the dream, it's this statue uh, with a head of gold that represents the Babylon the Babylonians, and it's got a chest of silver that represents another kingdom that would come after them. And then it's got uh, uh, thighs and legs of iron? No, bronze. And then the legs of iron, which represented the Romans. And so it's this vision of the kingdoms that were to come next. And Daniel tells him as much. But there's a significant moment where something in this dream, I think, and this is what upset King Nebuchadnezzar, is that a hand, not a human hand, carves out a stone. And the stone is thrown against this statue of these kingdoms. And it hits it in its feet that are a mixture of clay and iron. And the entire statue comes down. And this rock, as it's sitting there, and the statue is turned to dust, all of a sudden the rock begins to grow, and it grows into a mountain that fills the entire earth. And Daniel says, this is the kingdom of God. Wow, what an amazing vision. And yet, Daniel didn't achieve this on his own. He was willing to stand together. And so my question for you in chapter 2 is this, and I don't know if my punctuation is right on here, but you... And who are standing together? Do you know that it's God's desire that you know that you're not alone and that you have people that you can pray with and petition heaven with? And I love the urgency of this, that it's like their very lives are at stake. Don't you, don't you think, like, I pray differently when it's a, a boo-boo on my elbow versus threat of my life, Right? And I think this kind of casts for us a bit of a vision that God wants us to be in groups, to gather people, to pray as though our lives depend on it. Because I would urge you that your, your prayers, people's lives do depend on it as prayer moves the hand of God. So that's verse 2. Daniel interprets the dream. And uh, it's really neat because King Nebuchadnezzar says some really cool stuff about God. Being like, whoa, that's pretty awesome. And he Promotes Daniel, and Daniel promotes his friends. <clears throat> here we are, on to, I better grab a drink of water here. On to chapter 3. Now chapter 3 is this notion of standing up. And this is, uh, this is the chapter where our verses were read, that Troy had read. And it's this. I don't know how much time has passed, but King Nebuchadnezzar gets it in his mind that he wants to take on a building project. And so he's going to build uh, a, an image. And it's going to be, it's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. So that's 9 stories and 9 feet wide. Just this massive image. And he decides to, I don't know whether it was solid gold or he just laid the whole thing with gold. But when you looked at it, it's, it's solid gold. And you can't help but wonder, like, God had just given him a vision of all these kingdoms falling to the earth, and his was represented by a head of gold, but it turned into dust, that you can't help 
but think that maybe Nebuchadnezzar is trying something here by putting up this statue that's all gold, right? From top to bottom, almost as a way of saying, my kingdom is never going to end. My kingdom is never going to end. And so he's actually pretty cunning because in the same way that when they took over Israel, they took the best of the best and it was a bit of a strategy, like why waste good talent, right? Why not have them working for you? Um, I feel like it'd, it'd kind of be the equivalent of, have you ever known, like people that immigrate to Canada and then get like sort of what you would think would be low-end jobs and you talk to them and you find out that they're actually an engineer or a doctor in their country and you're like, this is crazy. And they're like, but this is, this is what we can get because, you know, there's an issue with the paperwork or whatever that it doesn't translate over. And I just go, wow, that's, that's crazy. Like, don't waste good talent. And Nebuchadnezzar thought the same thing. And this is another strategy. He was setting up a centralized worship. And so they would, the instructions were that everyone would worship this golden statue. And if you didn't, you'd get thrown into a furnace. Those were your options. And so King Nebuchadnezzar uh, stands it up, and you know the story that they give the call to worship, and everybody bows down. All, all the important people of the kingdom are, gra- are gathered there. Daniel's not mentioned in this story, and we're not really told why. Maybe he's, a, he's away, or he's off, or sick day, or something, we're not sure. But anyways, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the music plays, and the call is given for them all to bow down, and what do they do? They remain standing. They stand up. So as a crowd of people go down, prostrate before this image, they go, we're not doing this. This isn't our God. This is meaningless. We're not doing this. And so, of course, people are upset. They grab them. They bring them uh, before King Nebuchadnezzar. And he goes to give them another chance to bow down. He goes to give them, I'll, you know, we'll give you one more shot. And they don't even take it. They don't even want it. And instead, they say to them, and it's these verses, um, chapter 3, um, 16 on to 18 here. It says, Shadrach, um, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if we are not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's standing up. In a culture that is all bowing down, they risked their lives to take a stand for the God of Israel. And I love their conviction here. They know that God is able to save them from the furnace. But did you catch it? Like, we know the end of the story, so we're like, yeah, you know, it'd be easy to say that when you know that God's going to intervene in a huge way and show up and save you. But don't miss their conviction here. They say, but even if he doesn't, it doesn't change anything. Because we know who it is we serve, and it's not that image of gold. And so, I guess the challenge for us is, where is it in our lives that God is calling us to stand up. What is it in, in our lives that we have allowed culture so to invade and so to callous our hearts that we find that we're actually prostrate, bowing before something else than what we should? God wants Christians to stand up and to stand for truth. And I feel like this shows up in some of the most simplest ways. Like, um, I think of, like, technology. 
have, as a Christian, and healthy use of technology, I've talked to many, many guys who it's, they're in a, a, they're in a group of guys that have made an agreement to put uh, software, accountability software on their phones and on their computers so that every month or whatever, every week, there's a list of everything they've clicked on, everything they've viewed, everything they've searched that's sent to a friend or to their spouse. And they're living very differently. And now, you try to talk to somebody who isn't a Christian about the values of doing that, and they look at you like you're crazy. The world's like, why, why would you, like, keep that, why would you want anybody knowing about that? You keep that private. That's just between you. But God calls us to live differently. He calls us to stand up. Um, I won't share... Uh, name, but it was, uh, we had gone to a marriage retreat uh, last weekend. It was wonderful. Um, I think it was a good thing um, that we had to leave our vehicle behind for our babysitters, because I think had I had my wife in the van with me, and we were driving to this thing by ourselves, and I go, this is the first time since we've had kids that we have two nights away, just the two of us, I might have kept driving. Like, I might have ended up in Regina, but... Thank the Lord, the church, we were riding with the churches, and so they couldn't be convinced to ditch the wedding retreat <laughs> or the marriage retreat. No, but I'm so glad that we went. Anyways, uh, talking to a gentleman at this marriage retreat, and he was saying about how at his place of employment, he was talking over coffee and sharing about how he was going off to this marriage retreat. And the guys were dumbfounded. They couldn't understand. They were totally suspicious, thinking that it's something, it's something else. Like, it's, it's something questionable. Like, you're not really, like, just the two of you taking time off, like, the find, hassle of finding a baby and going away to, to work on your relationship, are you? Like, it was totally foreign. And there's this reality where, between the culture of the kingdom of God and the culture of this world, they're radically different. And God is calling us to be more a part of one, entirely a part of one, and not the other. And so that's going to look different, and it's going to cause us to stand up. Now, of course, um, the story ends with them being thrown into the furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar is the one to notice that there's not three people in there, but there's four. And God shows up and saves them. And when they exit the furnace, when they exit this fire that had been heated up seven times hotter, the three of them come out and there's not a mark on them. They don't smell a smoke or fire, nothing singed. The only thing missing are their bonds, the things that bound them. And when I read this, you guys, oh, I can't help but feel like that's what I want in my own heart is that my heart would be so filled with the presence of God and the fire of God that there's nothing left there that can bind me or hold me back. And I can't help but think about, what if there were other Israelites there, like who maybe had bowed down to this golden thing, and then they all crowd around, and, and there's like four people in this fire, and they realize what's happening. And I, I just think there's this urgency as my imagination plays away. I would run to that fire. I would run to that fire and gladly jump in because I know that the presence of the living God is there and it has no harm to me. It's rendered ineffective because of who's there with me. And I don't know about you, but it creates this passion in me to go, Lord, make my heart a raging fire like that, that the only thing that is consumed 
are the bonds that hold me back. And the only thing that remains is what you decide to let remain. And he's a good God, and these are good things. Here we go. I got I to gotta keep trucking here. Three, we're done. Number four. Chapter four in Daniel. And uh, I've titled this one, Stand Down. I know. I just told you to stand up. Now I'm telling you to stand up. But it'll make sense. Here. Chapter four. Oh, man. I got to watch my time. There's so many rabbit trails. Okay. Okay. You promise me I'll at least read the first six chapters of Daniel. It's phenomenal. Chapter four is amazing. It's a chapter written entirely by King Nebuchadnezzar. A pagan, a pagan king gets a whole chapter in the Bible. It's crazy. And in this chapter, he tells you that once again, he has a dream. And now Nebuchadnezzar, at each step of the way, he's been getting closer and closer to God, of praising God, of exalting it, of what's, honoring what's happening. But there seems to be always something that's drawing him away. And once again, he's drawn away and he has a dream. And in this dream, um, it's, it's kind of a really weird dream. But Daniel's, he gets Daniel to interpret. And it's like, basically, it's like, you're prideful and the Lord's going to take you down unless you change your ways and repent. And King Nebuchadnezzar hears him and doesn't pay much attention to him. Um, then we find, get this, and I'll read this in, um, I got a couple of verses here for you. So then uh, we're in four and we're on verse 29 here. Twelve months later, after he's had this vision and it's been interpreted, as, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I've built as a royal residence? By my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. I don't know if he talked like that, but. <laughs> but no sooner had he asked the question than verse 31 hits. Even as the words are on his lips, a voice came from heaven. Get this, pagan king, voice from heaven. God is speaking audibly to King Nebuchadnezzar. This is serious. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And it happens exactly like that. He's afflicted with some kind of disease, behavioral, mental disorder, uh, causes his hair to grow out and develop claws, and he's cast from the palace, and he lives for seven years like an animal eating grass. Whoa. Do you remember when he heated that furnace seven times hotter? And here in his arrogance... He's paying seven years living like an animal. Wow. Wow. Jumping towards the end there, verse 37, it says this. Written by Nebuchadnezzar's own hand. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so I believe the question for us from this chapter is what 
source of pride exists in your life that God would desire you to stand down from. The neat thing is, is that Nebuchadnezzar turned to God after seven years, and the Bible says that it restored him, and that he was actually greater than he was before when he turned to the Lord. Time is marching on, so we must to chapter 5 we hit. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has come out of ruling reign. I don't really know what happened to him. I, I didn't brush up on the history on this. Maybe he just retired. Maybe he's like, this, is, this isn't for me. I'm, I'm serving the Lord now. I'm out of here. Anyway, there's a guy that steps into his place. This is still the Babylonian uh, Empire, and his name is Belshazzar. Now, Daniel's given name is Belteshazzar, not to be confused with Belshazzar. The way I remember it is Daniel's has belt in it. You can think of belt of truth, that Daniel stood for truth. And Belshazzar has B-E-L, a bell in it. And it's like the dinging of a bell in terms of your time is up because he doesn't have a long roll in chapter 5. This is the story of the writing on the wall. And here I would title this chapter, title, Stand Empty-Handed. Uh, King Belshazzar um, is throwing a party, decides to use, ah, they're serving all kinds of gods in Babylon. And they, so they grab the, the goblets that they'd taken from Israel from the um, temple, and they're just using them as kind of common celebratory wear, like your red solo cup, basically, is what they're doing. And uh, treating him with disrespect, and a hand shows up and writes some words on the wall, and he gets upset, and he calls um, his, you know, the magicians in, and, or the, and everybody, nobody can figure out what it says, so he, of course, he turns to Daniel, and Daniel comes in. Oh, I don't want to lose my spot. Oh. Hold on, I didn't highlight this in my Bible. Sorry about that. I mean, is it? Oh, good. There we go. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Here we go. So Daniel answers the king. Get this. He comes in, and the king's already promising, promising him favors and riches, and he'll be promoted. Um, and this is how Daniel answers. And you just get this. You can't help but get the sense that Daniel's been through the ring of the mill already, right? He says. And then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell you what it means. Incidentally, it means uh, your bell has been rung, you've been weighed on the scales and been found wanting, your time is short. Gives them the interpretation, and they go on celebrating that very night. The Persians and the Medes invade and take over. Babylon is done. Belshazzar is beheaded. His time was up. Something about Daniel in this inspires me that he's not willing to, he's just kind of been around this so much that he's not even tempted by glory and fame and position and power and stuff. And so I feel like the Lord was challenging me in this challenge, in this chapter to be like, um, are you willing to stand empty-handed? Are you willing to stand with only me? Or is your obedience conditional? Is it, yeah, I'll serve God, 
and I really want that big house. Or, yeah, I'll be, I'll be obedient to God, but I really want Alexis. Or, I'll be obedient to God, but I'm, I need to have these people in my life, these friends. I'm not going to do anything that's going to jeopardize that. And yet, the attitude that Daniel and his friends modeled in their exile was one that it was obedience to God above all else. Daniel was willing to stand there empty-handed because he knew who it was that was standing with him. Brings us here, we're right on schedule, we're doing pretty good here. Uh, brings us to the lion's den. And this one I finally, I've titled it, Stand Firm. By now, Daniel is actually in his 80s, probably. We always think of maybe him being this young, agile guy. Well, he was when he went into exile. And now he's seen rulers come and go. He's seen kings rise and fall. Uh, in fact, this is, um, this is another ruler. Um, this is the Mede-Persian. So he's even seen, it's just like in, his, in, the, in the vision with the statue, it's another kingdom. He's seen them come and go. And yet one thing's remained is that he's always had favor with people. And it's, a, it's important to note that it's a God-given favor, not a favor won out of compromise. Daniel never compromised, yet God chose to give him, give him favor with those that he wanted him to have favor. I feel like that's an encouraging word for us too. It's a God-given favor, not one wrought by compromise. And Darius really likes Daniel and actually has in mind to put Daniel in charge of the entire kingdom because he's brilliant. It's clear that God is with him. Why waste good talent? Let's let him rule. But all the other rulers are having none of it. They don't like this idea. And the Bible says that they knew that the only way that they could catch Daniel was to catch him in, a, in, in, in his relationship with God, that if there was some way they could make that a crime, then they knew that they would have it. If they, if they pitted him, the rule against his God, they knew that they'd have Daniel. So they go to Darius and they say, hey, we came up with this really great 30-day plan um, where nobody can worship or pray to anybody else except you. What do you think? Darius goes, yeah, okay, sure, whatever, I'm flattered. Uh, let's go with it. So he issues the decree. And again, I don't know why, they get these crazy ideas, like thrown into the fire, and like, or thrown into the lion's den, but it's, it's backed with a lion's den this time. And here we go, we jump in and get this, 6, verse 10. Now, Dan, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Of course, these men rush in and as a group and they've caught him in the act and they take him before. And Darius is distraught. He never would have imagined that this would happen. I don't know, maybe he thought, you know, Daniel had other options, right? He could have chose to just not pray. We've all done that, right? Just take a break, right? I just need, I'm just going to take a little bit of break and I'm just not, I'm not going to feel guilty. Like Daniel could have did that. He could have did his own Daniel 30-day fast from prayer. He didn't. Again, as I've already mentioned, he could have he prayed covertly, right? That's the great thing about the Christ, Christianity, praying to God who's everywhere and knows the intentions of our heart, that he could have just prayed with his eyes open walking around. He still could have been calling out to God and praying. But Daniel didn't. 
So even knowing that his life is on the line, he decides, I'm not changing my habits. This is the God I've been serving from the beginning, and this is the God I'll be serving till my end. And of course, they grab him, and the king is actually looking for a way out of this, um, but he can't find it. It's law, it's binding, so they throw Daniel into the lion's den. And of course, you know the end of the story. God sends an angel to protect him, and Daniel comes out. And so, I want to ask you this question. Do you know that the God who is with Daniel will also help you to stand firm? I needed to hear that this week. I needed to hear that it's not a different God than the God that I'm reading in the scriptures. It's one and the same. And that God stands with us. In fact, it's God who enables us to stand firm. You can go to the next slide, please, Tim. There it is. Uh, Click a few more down. I'm going to end with this. So here we go. We spent time in the lower story. We've looked at uh, how God wants us to stand out, stand together, stand up, stand down, stand empty-handed, and stand firm. And those have all meant to help us in the here and now of our exile that we're facing. But as we turn our attention to the upper story, just as we close, chapters 7 to 12, it becomes really, really clear that the upper story is all about kings and kingdoms, but there's only one eternal king and eternal kingdom. Just one. The matter is firmly established. And I love how, uh, and I'm going to end with these verses. It's King Darius writing, and Nebuchadnezzar had said something very similar earlier, but in 6, verse 26, he says, um, after Daniel had been saved, he says, he issues this decree, that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the God, he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves, he performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the den of the lions. And so I want to encourage you this morning that as we end, Maybe there's been a question that has tweaked your heart or stirred your passions. But you need to know that the same God that Daniel served is the same God that we serve, and he's with us to help us stand firm. And he does that not by us keeping our attention fixed on the lower story, on what's going on in our circumstances, but lifting our eyes above it to the upper story of what he is doing. Where the one true king, Jesus Christ, reigns and is not threatened And it leaves us with a choice. It leaves us a choice to either see our exile here as punishment and judgment from God, where we question his intentions and wonder what he's doing, or we see our exile here as being on mission from God, where we let him tell his story through us. Please stand. The worship team is going to lead us in a last song. And I want to encourage you that if uh, if you would like prayer this morning, After responding to this song, um, prayer teams will be up here at the front. Uh, I'll be up here. And if you would like prayer, um, I'd just be so, so happy to pray with you. God bless. Stand firm.
Amen. Amen. Thank you, God. If you need prayer, 